Hello, and welcome to my podcast, where the dark corners are. Travels hostess. Tonight, I'm going to share a sad true crime that shocked our nation. The Chicago Tylenol Murders. While there are many reasons, many reasons, why this crime truly rocked our nation, looking back over 40 years later, there are two founding reasons why. The first is the absolute pure evil behind the person who not only conceived this heinous idea, but executed it. It's like no decent person would even ever think on this level. And moreover, it is unfathomable to good people to even come to this decision. The second reason why is because of how random the victims were. And as such, left absolutely everybody open for being the next victim. So let's start at the beginning, the murders. On the eve of the anniversary of these murders 41 years ago, at approximately 6.30 a.m., it was a Wednesday morning of September 29, 1982, Mary Kellerman, a 7th grader at Adams Junior High, woke up with a sore throat and a runny nose. She had actually been allowed to stay home from school the day previously, and she was still feeling very unwell. Mary, being 12 years old from Elk Grove Village, which is a suburb of Chicago, asked to stay home, again, because she was still feeling unwell. They decided to give her one extra-strength Tylenol capsule. Unfortunately, this is the beginning of a horrendous nightmare because unbeknownst to them, this Tylenol capsule was laced with highly poisonous potassium cyanide. At approximately 7 a.m., she collapses in the bathroom and her father calls 911. Mary is rushed to the Alexandrian Brothers Medical Center in Elk Grove Village. Sadly, at 9.56 a.m., Mary is pronounced dead. Her death was first assumed to be a stroke. Again, she's 12. Now, because of her age and the strange circumstances, she gets an autopsy. On this same Wednesday, again, September 29th, 27-year-old mailman Adam Jonas was not feeling well himself. He was a happily married man with two children, a daughter named Keisha and a son named Tom. He actually calls off work because he's not feeling well. He picks up his daughter from daycare, and together they head over to the local Jewel Osco store in Arlington Heights, again, a suburb of Chicago. There he buys his wife some flowers and some Tylenol extra strength for himself. 
After making his purchases, they head home. Once home, Adam opens the tunnel, takes two capsules, and decides to lay down. It's not long afterwards that his wife noticed something was seriously wrong with Adam and calls 911. Paramedics rush Adam to the Northwest Community Hospital, and sadly, at 3.15 p.m., medical personnel confirm that Adam has died. Initially, they believe that he died of a massive heart attack. As Adam's family is trying to digest this horrifying moment, at 3.45, 30 minutes after Adam is pronounced dead, Mary Lynn Rayner, a stay-at-home mom who had actually just given birth to her fourth child, a baby boy, was suffering from post-birthing pains. She takes some extra strength tunnel and collapses. Mary, who was 27 at the time, lived in Winfield with her husband, Ed, and it is Ed who calls 911 when he comes home and finds Mary on the floor. Mary was described as a good mom, a good cook, who loved playing softball, who loved playing the drums, and who enjoyed bowling. Mary gets taken to the Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. Now, back at Adam's house, at exactly, again, it's all the same day, at approximately 5 p.m., the Janice family is beginning to try to discuss Adam's funeral and is trying to process the shocking turn of events. Again, Adam is 27 years old. At Adam's house was his wife, Teresa, their children, Adam's parents, his siblings, including his brother Stanley, 25, and Stanley's wife, Teresa, age 19. Stanley and Teresa had just been married on June 19, 1982, and had honeymooned in Hawaii. Now, Stanley suffered from chronic back pain, and with the stress of his brother suddenly dying, Stanley asked his wife, Teresa, for some Tylenol. Teresa, then having a stress headache herself Teresa takes two capsules for herself then to the absolute horror of the Janice family Stanley collapses with white foam at his mouth and the family calls 911 while the paramedics were attending Stanley Teresa grabs the arm of one of the emergency crew members and collapses right in front of them they were both taken to the Northwest Community Hospital just like Adam Sadly, again, this is all September 29th, this day of death continued. At 6.30 p.m., Mary McFarland, a single mom of Ryan and Bradley McFarland, tells her co-workers at Illinois' Bell in Lombard that she herself has a bad headache. The 31-year-old will go to the back room, take some Tylenol, and almost immediately collapses to the floor. And... This is exactly where her co-workers find her. She is taken to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. Now, after the deaths of the three Janice family members, Chuck Kramer of the Arlington Heights Fire Department reaches out to the public health nurse, Helen Jensen. Nurse Jensen meets with Dr. Thomas Kim and Nick Pichos, who is an investigator with the Cook County's Medical Examiner's Office, and she begins her investigation by questioning the family. After her initial inquiries, she and investigator Pichos head to the Janice's family home at approximately 8 p.m. 
It is here where Nurse Jansen zeroes in on what she believes is the culprit. Unfortunately, the day is not done claiming victims. The last victim is Paula Prince. Miss Prince is a 35-year-old flight attendant with United Airlines. She had just come in from a flight from Las Vegas to Chicago O'Hare. At 9.30 p.m., Paula will stop at the Walgreens at 1601 North Wells Street to buy some Tylenol. She had a headache. After this purchase, she heads home. Meanwhile, Nurse Jensen takes the evidence she believes is the link between the deaths of the three Janice's family members and heads back to the Northwest Community Hospital. There she meets with Dr. Thomas Kim and explains that the bottle of Tylenol has a suspicious smell of bitter almonds to it. But her suspicions actually get dismissed, much to her great dismay. So Nurse Jensen goes home. However, in the early morning of Thursday, September 30th, at about 1 a.m., Dr. Kim receives confirmation that the capsules in the Tylenol that Nurse Jensen provided were in fact filled with potassium cyanide. At 3.15 a.m., Mary McFarlane is pronounced dead at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Downers Grove. At 9.30 a.m., Mary Rainer, mother of four, is pronounced dead at the Central DuPage Hospital in Winfield. So by now, word has reached Johnson & Johnson, the parent company of Tylenol. They send a representative to the Cook County Medical Office and realize the severity of the situation. At 10 a.m., Cook County Medical Examiners conduct their very first conference regarding the poisoning. By 3 p.m., Johnson & Johnson announces the recall of all Tylenol from the lot MC2880, which was the number stamped on the bottle of the Tylenol, and they themselves begin their internal investigation. But by then, law enforcement had actually already begun pulling the medications from the shelves. In addition to the television announcements and their radio commercials, the police actually begin having units, car units, drive around neighborhoods using their bullhorns to announce the warnings about Tylenol. On Friday, October 1st, the Attorney General of the State of Illinois hosts a meeting with local law enforcement to discuss the potential scope and range of area of these poisonings. Because you have to realize everyone is panicking. They don't know who, how, or why. They Well, they do actually know the how, but what they don't know is, is how big is this? What is the radius of the size of the poisoning that is happening? They And that's the problem. They just don't know. And they don't know what they don't know. And to be fair, even today, this thing is just unfathomable. Now, at 1.15, Teresa Janice, who had slipped into a coma, is taken off life support at Northwest Community Hospital, and unfortunately, she's pronounced dead. At 5 p.m., the police discover the body of Paula Prince in her old town apartment at 1540 North LaSalle Street. According to a friend and co-worker, Joan Ahern of the United Airlines, Paula was supposed to meet her sister for dinner, and Paula was a no-show for a flight on Friday. Between these two factors and the fact that Paula was not answering her phone, law enforcement was contacted. The police found the poisonous Tylenol bottle sitting on the bathroom counter. 
Now, as I previously mentioned, Johnson & Johnson's response is immediate. And for this incident, it's actually commendable. Now, by October 15th, they, re they will recall more than 31 million bottles of Tylenol in circulation, costing the company more than $100 million. And this is this is 1982 money. Imagine when it's like 2023 money. Either way, because this happens, they get lucky. They come across eight more bottles of tainted capsules, Tylenol, and, you know, they just continue to discover them in, well until October. But the point is, is that they basically end up saving people's lives. And all of them, they recognize, is in the Chicago area. In addition to this, McNeil, a co-company partner of Johnson & Johnson, along with Johnson & Johnson, offered to replace capsules to those who had already turned in their pills and swapped them out. So basically, we'll give you a solid pill for the capsule pill that you just turned in. But these companies even go one step further. They offer a $100,000 reward for anyone with information leading up to the apprehension of the individual or individuals who are involved in these random murders. Now, after some investigations, Johnson & Johnson quickly learned that these bottles, the ones with the MC2880, were in fact manufactured at two separate factories, one in Pennsylvania and the other in Texas. As such, they logically conclude that whoever traded out the capsules with tainted poisonous cyanide had to have done it post-manufacturing and basically at the store level, which means the killer had to purchase several bottles, took them home, placed the poisonous pills in the bottles, and then planted the tainted bottles in various stores throughout the Chicago area and basically just sat back and waited for these bottles to be purchased by unsuspecting victims. On Wednesday, October 6th, law enforcement, including the FBI, get their very first break. Two, actually. An extortion letter that was mailed in is received by Johnson & Johnson demanding $1 million to stop the terminal killings. First big break is in the extortion letter. It includes a bank account number. Bank account number 844-9598 at the Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago, Illinois. The second big break is hidden on an envelope under layers of ink is the postmark of the date. The date of the postmark apparently shows that, that this letter was sent before the public was informed of the deaths being linked to Lise Tylenol. So basically, whoever would have such knowledge knew that it was the Tylenol pills killing everyone. So of course, the sender has to be the killer. And believe it or not, Johnson & Johnson was actually willing to pay the demand of $1 million. But the FBI says, hold up. Hold up. Let's bring in a handwriting expert and let's check out this bank account. So basically the FBI is asking Johnson & Johnson for the opportunity to do some investigation. The bank account 
ends up belonging to a company that closed its business in April. The company? Lakeside Travel. Using the fingerprints from the letter, the FBI traces them to a man named Robert Richard. Robert Richard actually did not work for Lakeside Travel, but his wife did. She was Lakeside Travel's bookie. And when Lakeside Travel closed the store, they gave Mrs. Richard a final check that bounced. So the hunt is on. And on December 13th, 1982, the FBI finds Robert in New York after a librarian reports seeing him. And of course, they arrest him. And once he's in custody, they actually start to learn a lot more about Robert Richards. First and foremost, Robert Richard is not his real name. His real name is James William Lewis, born on August 8, 1946, in Memphis, Tennessee. Mr. Lewis has a rather questionable history with law enforcement. Prior to these deaths in 1982, in 1978, James was actually charged in Kansas City, Missouri, with the dismemberment murder of Raymond West. Mr. West, who was at the age of 72 at the time of his murder, had hired James as an accountant. Sadly, Mr. West's dismembered body, and apparently decomposing body at that, was found hanging from a pulley in his attic the same day that James tried to cash a forged check on Mr. West's account. Imagine that. What's the, what, what are the chances of that happening? They find his body the same day James is trying to cash a forged check from Mr. West's bank account. Unfortunately, the judge in this case dismisses this case because James was not read his rights upon his arrest and the fact that Mr. West's cause of death could not be determined. And because of these two factors, the judge ends up dismissing the case outright. However, in 1981, James gets convicted of six counts of mail fraud credit card scheme in Kansas City, basically committing identity fraud of using the name and background of former tax clients to obtain 13 credit cards. Now, even James's arrival, his wife and his arrival in New York, is very suspicious. So here's what happened. Apparently on September 4th, James and his wife just ups and leave Chicago. No warning, nothing. Even though they actually had paid the full month's rent of September, even though they tell their friends, hey, we're moving to Texas, to be closer to her parents. And they just up and leave like that. They buy, using cash, they buy two one-way ticket train tickets to New York City. And again, Shady, for some reason, they, they opted to use a lot of aliases. Now, typically, they would use names like Karen and William Wagner while traveling, but this time, they actually opted to use Robert and Nancy Richardson while living in New York. And again, having aliases, knowing how to commit credit card fraud, already kind of got suspicion that you killed an old guy. None of this makes sense unless dirty deeds are involved. Now, when James is arrested in December, 
on December 13, 1982. At first, he denies any part of it, of course. However, after he's presented with handwriting analysis, he acknowledges sending the letter but denies doing the poisoning. And believe it or not, James is actually found to have previously possessed, surprisingly, a book on poisoning, and as such, yes, when they found the book, his fingerprints, of course, were all over the pages related to potassium cyanide. But he clings to the cry of innocence. But basically, he has his OJ moment with, while I didn't do it, but if I had, here is how I would have done it. So he basically explains to the FBI and law enforcement, this is how I would have done it if I had done it. Now, when pressed about the demand for money, he claims he wanted to embarrass his wife's former employer by having the money sent to the former employer's bank account. Because, again, you have to remember, they bounced her last check, and James was actually pretty pissed about it. But he, again, claims that he never intended to actually claim this, this ransom, this extortion money. You know, I'll be honest, this statement alone gives me the impression that not only did he still have access to the account, or his wife did, but yes, yes, it kind of doesn't sound as legitimate as he wants it to. However, this is a big, big however. Law enforcement is not able to prove how James did it. There was no track record of him traveling back and forth between New York and Chicago. And he. there were witnesses verifying he was in New York on these dates, yada, yada, yada. And they just couldn't figure out how. So this is a huge, huge gap in the how part of the replanting of the poisonous bottles. Now, it would be noted that law enforcement did actually believe that they caught James on film in one of the stores as Paula Prince was buying her deadly bottle. But again, this was not enough for prosecution. And this is 1982. The fact that they even have this potential video or visual evidence is, is unheard of. Nowadays, I mean, you've got several to cameras and different angles from different houses, from different doorknobs, who's going to capture several different things, but not in 1982. Now for his extortion letter. On October 27, 1983, following an eight-day federal trial in Chicago, James gets sentenced to 20 years. He gets paroled in 13 years, so he does not serve the full 20 in October of 1995, at which time he and his wife decides to move to the Boston area of Massachusetts, living under a different name. But James just can't stay out of trouble. In 2004, James gets indicted on six charges, including aggravated rape, drugging a person. What? It, wow, dr drugging people? With the intent to stupefy or overpower for sexual intercourse for an alleged attack on a woman in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He gets held in jail 
and he ends up waiting for his trial for three years. And on the day of his trial, prosecutors dismiss the charges after the victim refuses to testify. In 2006, Task Force 2 is formed to reinvestigate the Tylenol murders. In January of 2009, the FBI reopens the case, focusing on James. With a warrant in February 2009, they raid his house and they take several items of interest, including the family computer. And James and his wife end up both providing DNA samples in 2010. However, their DNA does not match the DNA found on the bottles used for the killing. Now, just this past July, July 9th, 2023, it was a Sunday. James's wife was out of town and was unable to get a James. So she contacted a neighbor, and the neighbor contacted the police. And that's when law enforcement found him for the last time. He had died. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeremy Margulis, who prosecuted James in the extortion case, told the newspapers that he regretted that Lewis never got his day of reckoning. And I'm, I'm quoting here. I was saddened to learn of James Lewis's death, he said in a statement to the Tribune. Not because he's dead, but because he didn't die in prison. The Cook County State Attorney's Office and the DuPage County Stage Attorney's Office have never actually answered as to why they never brought charges against Lewis or any other suspect. Now, this tragedy will end up resulting in some safety measures that are still being used today. We now have plastic outer ceiling. We now have foil inner ceilings. And we now have warning labels saying not to consume that the seals are broken. Also, in 1983, Congress ends up passing the Federal Anti-Tampering Act, making it illegal to tamper with packaged consumer goods. The crime is now punishable up to 20 years in prison and a fine of $100,000. If someone dies as a result of the tampering, the maximum sentence increases to life in prison. The major downsides for us Generation X kids, Halloween was actually very much affected that year. More than 40 cities across the country banned trick-or-treating, and across America, grocery stores reported that candy sales were actually down more than 20%. For me, the one hang-up is the letter. Again, it was sent before they announced that Tylenol was the connecting factor all of the deaths. So not only did the killer had to know people were going to die, but they knew the brand of the name of the company to send the letter beforehand. What a fucking coincidence that was. And I say they, because I firmly believe that this was perpetrated by more than one person. Again, you can have a bunch of evil people coming to the same, you know, horrendous, Killing idea at the same time. You know, one person with the idea, one person with the planting. Granted, again, DNA was not on the scope in 1982, but fingerprints were. 
And what a great way of throwing law enforcement off your scent if you can prove that you were somewhere else when the planting happened. And if I were a betting person, the reason why someone takes your computer is to see who your associates are, even after all this time, to help narrow down who your accomplices may have been back in 1982. Just tossing out some side ideas. All right, that is what I have for you tonight on to business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. We have a Facebook page, and if you are curious and or interested and would like to join, send us a request at where the dark corners are, Facebook page. But if you have a topic or a serial killer or a place you'd like us to delve into with a paranormal itinerary, send us a request at where the dark corners are at gmail.com. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is where I hope to meet you where the dark corners are. (laughs) 